These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. Last time, we looked at the life and rule of Nebuchadnezzar. And overall, I think most listeners would agree that even if we look at his life generously, he was at best a decent king. Now, it's fair to say he's the best king of the Issan dynasty, but that's not really too high a hurdle to clear. But as I mentioned last time, he would go on in later Babylonian history to be regarded as one of the all-time greatest kings, and his return to the Marduk statue would be commemorated in epic poetry in multiple genres. Now, how is it that we go from a decent king to a legendary king? This episode won't have the full answer because it's still a bit mysterious, but we are going to look at some of the things that later Babylonians wrote about him, both to get a sense of how religion and kingship were evolving, and also just because it's fun. And before I go further, two little notes. First, if you haven't listened to the previous episode called Nabuchodonosor, I do recommend that you listen to that first. I... I think most of you listen to the show in order, but I know some of you uh, skip around, and I'm going to just assume you already know the context of his life. Second, if you're new to the show and haven't listened to the last episode, this is definitely a legendary Nebuchadnezzar, but it isn't the legendary Nebuchadnezzar. That is to say, this is not the guy in the Bible. Today we're talking about Nebuchadnezzar the first. The biblical guy is Nebuchadnezzar the second. Uh, someone who this show won't be getting to for a good number of episodes, at least at the rate we're going right now. Anyway, if neither of these has scared you off yet, here's a quick refresher on Nebuchadnezzar's life. He becomes king, maybe he killed his father, and then he starts attacking a bunch of minor states. Then he attacks Assyria, then he attacks some Kassites on the Diyala River, then he makes his famous raid into Elam, where he captures the statue of Marduk, and thus rescues the lost god of Babylon from the clutches of the evil army. I then concluded the episode by saying that the rest of his rule was pretty quiet and no one seems to have made a very big deal about the rescue of the god during his lifetime. However, later tradition records that Nebuchadnezzar immediately seized upon the victory in Elam to burnish his own credentials. There exists, you see, a letter which was supposedly sent via Babylon's fastest courier following the conclusion of the war. The messenger was to hurry back and spread the good news of Marduk's retrieval ahead of the returning army. Now, some think this may have been a literary device invented in a later era, but of course there may have been an actual letter, and so we're going to look at it First, before looking at things which are definitely written much later, and the letter may have read something like this. To the citizenry of Babylon, of protected status, of leaders, learned and wise, men of business and commerce, great and small, thus says Nebuchadnezzar, viceroy of Enlil, native of Babylon, the king your lord. You should know that the great lord Marduk, who was angry at all the holy places for a long time, took pity on Babylon.' 
He gave me, in his majesty, the sublime command. In the awe-inspiring sanctuary of Asagila, he ordered me to take the road of march to the land of Elam. I gave reverent heed to the command of the great lord Marduk. I assembled the army of Enlil, Shamash, and Marduk, and set forth towards the land of Elam. On I went, traversing distant ways, waterless roads, night and day. At the Ulaya River, the enemy, the vile Elamite, blocked the watering places where the troops traversed. I could give no water, nor could I relieve their fatigue. I advanced rapidly against him, weapons brandished in battle. Through the might of Enlil, Shamash, and Marduk, which have no equal, I overwhelmed the king of Elam, defeating him. His army scattered, his forces dispersed, he abandoned his troops, crossed his watercourses terrified. I ravaged the land. He abandoned his strongholds and disappeared. I hastened on, and I beheld the great lord Marduk, lofty warrior of the gods, and the gods of the land of Babylonia, whom he commanded, were present with him. I raised up a cry and set up a wailing. I brought the great lord Marduk in procession and set out on the road to his homeland. Now, the rest of the letter is too damaged to reconstruct, but it should have been full of praises to Marduk, to his temple, the Esagula, and instructions for preparing for the god's return. Once Nebuchadnezzar arrives, however, we hear remarkably little about the return of the god in contemporary sources. Now, we should be a little careful with that. The number of, actually, of actual sources that were certain come from his reign can be counted without running out of fingers and toes. And if you're real skeptical, or you have a lot of fingers then you don't even need to go on the toes. There could well be a plethora of documents that were written to celebrate, even in Nebuchadnezzar's own lifetime, none of which have survived or yet been discovered. Still, what we do have doesn't really play up the great return of the god Marduk, and that makes us wonder if maybe it wasn't actually such a big deal in Nebuchadnezzar's own time period. And this is a question that gets at the heart of a pretty big issue in Babylonian history. Now, I've been playing up the god Marduk, especially as we got into the late Kassite period, suggesting that the god was growing more and more important. He'd always been the city god of Babylon, but every city had a god, and they had a whole pantheon of gods in addition to your city god, and in addition, of course, to your personal god and your family god, and if you were part of a tribe, you had a tribal god, there were a lot of gods, and all of them were important, but there is an idea that Marduk, as the city god of Babylon, had been growing more important in Babylon, and similarly, up in, a, up in Asher, that the god Asher, was becoming, who was the city god of the city of Asher, was becoming increasingly important up there. But in this idea of things, the recovery of the god Marduk was what enabled a return of the full religious rituals that had previously been associated with his temple, most notably the Akitu New Year's Festival, where the king of Babylon would 
quite directly interact with the cult statue of Marduk in ways both public and private. The great return of Marduk in this interpretation is the thing which inspired a great cultural explosion of science and literature and prosperity for the city of Babylon. Now, this at least is the interpretation that later Babylonians appear to put on this portion of their own history, celebrating the return of Marduk as a seminal achievement, one long prophesied which concerned, confirmed the factuality and the supremacy of their religion. Now, there is, however, another interpretation. In the minds of some historians, the reason that we don't hear too much about the recovery of Marduk is because at this point in history, he may not have been too much more significant than any other god. For sure, in what we know about the rest of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, he spent a good deal of time constructing temples and shrines to gods who were not Marduk. In fact, aside from this one statue recovery, we don't hear much about Marduk in particular at all, just we hear about Marduk as one of a number of important Babylonian gods. In this view, Nebuchadnezzar funded a great deal of cultural activity to puff up the god Marduk in particular, perhaps because his wars against Elam and Asher had been of such limited success that he really needed something to get the people hyped about him. So, in this skeptical view, the Enuma Elish, the tale of Marduk becoming lord over all the gods, may not have existed until the reign of Nebuchadnezzar I. Now, in the more devout former view, the Enuma Elish was compiled in a sort of authoritative version at this time, but probably existed before this. But, of course, the skeptical view on the, would say that Something like the Akatu festival may have been just invented whole cloth around this time. Or perhaps an existing New Year's festival was greatly rewritten in favor of Marduk. The devout view, by contrast, would see the Akatu festival as something that's being revitalized in this time, the fervor restored with the god's restoration, but the broad outline and Marduk-focused nature of the holiday had developed slowly over previous generations. And the truth is that we really don't have enough evidence to say for sure uh, very much anything about this period. The skeptical side does have some compelling linguistic evidence that a lot of the documents that we consider to be highly Marduk-focused come from after the Kassite period. Some of the best scholars writing about this particular period seem to have a general tendency towards the more skeptical side. On the other hand, there's a running debate going all the way back to the old Babylonian period period as to just how prominent Marduk was in the Bronze Age. If the skeptics are right, where would this Mardukian supremacy come from if it just suddenly showed up by royal fiat? My own view on the matter is that the Marduk cult was likely quite popular even before Nebuchadnezzar, and perhaps even a fair bit supremacist, that is, holding Marduk above other gods. 
but that the prior centuries of foreign Kassite rule kept too much Marduk supremacy out of the written record. After all, if the Kassites, for political reasons, could not exalt their foreign gods too publicly, they certainly weren't going to exalt a Babylonian god over their own. But with the Isin dynasty, the restoration of Akkadian rule to the Akkadian people of Babylonia, the native religious expression could return. And with the return of, Mar of this Marduk statue, the last thing discouraging the glory of Marduk was finally removed, and the long-suppressed feelings of the faithful could fully blossom. Now this is, I should stress, probably more speculative than even a historian who generally agrees with me would take things. That's the joy of doing a podcast. Rather than being an academic, I get to fill in the holes to make a better story. And this generally fits my own view on much of ancient history. People uh, that have contacted the show, and by the way, you can always contact the show at the contact page over at oldeststories.net with any comments or questions or uh, just to fill my email box with spam, I suppose. Anyway, people have noticed when they contact me that I generally pick pretty early dates for a lot of the cultural stuff, like putting the start of astrology all the way back in the Akkadian Empire, and when I claim that Gilgamesh was probably mythologized back in the early dynastic period and things like that, my general thought is that these things probably existed in the oral tradition for a long time before they made it to the written record. Both because so much has been lost that the earliest copies for most things are probably super rare, and also because the effort involved in committing something to clay as well as the institutional context of Mesopotamian literacy, meant that the scribes who did most of the writing were probably not, shall we say, on the bleeding edge of culture. They could innovate, that much is very clear, and they certainly had an intellectual class to rival that of any age. But they worked within a framework that valued cultural conservatism to an extent that we find really hard to comprehend nowadays. Even the most conservative institutions in modern culture would have been highly dynamic and probably really intimidating to a scribe of ancient Mesopotamia. But I say all that, and I could well be wrong. Nebuchadnezzar and his top advisors could well at this point have invented the supremacy of Marduk whole cloth at this point. What's undeniable, though, is that in the next few decades, possibly into the next century or so, we're seeing a great flowering of Babylonian culture, and Nebuchadnezzar, through his return of Marduk, would be the one to largely get the credit for this in later Babylonian history. Now, one open question in this whole debate is when exactly a text called the Marduk Prophecy was written. Now, dating prophecy is an inherently risky business. If we take the prophecy seriously, trusting in the power of the god in the way that the author clearly intends, then we should assume that the prophecy was written in the deep past. And even if the version that survives until today has signs of being from a later period, we should assume that they were introduced during copying over the centuries. On the other hand, 
If we start from the perspective that Marduk and the Mesopotamian gods have no power over the world and likely don't exist, then we're forced to place the dating of this prophecy to the reign of Nebuchadnezzar at the very earliest, and possibly even later than that. In the skeptical secular view, we still aren't sure when the Marduk prophecy was written, though some think it was written in the reign of Nebuchadnezzar following his great victory. Now, we actually read parts of this before when we discussed the last times that the statue of the Marduk was stolen away from Babylon, in the Hittite sack of 1595 and the Assyrian conquest of the 1230s. It begins rather curiously, with Marduk speaking to the other gods, saying, Great gods who are learned in my mysteries. Now that I'm ready for a journey, I will tell you my name. I am Marduk, great lord, the most lofty one, he who inspects, who goes back and forth through the mountains, the lofty one, inspector, who smites the lands, he who goes constantly back and forth in the lands from sunrise to sunset am I. So right at the beginning, we're establishing that Marduk just has a habit of wandering off. Maybe it does or doesn't say anything about the kings of Babylon when Marduk wanders away, but of course it does say good things about the kings when Marduk returns. Politically convenient, and it seems a bit carefree for the greatest of Babylonian gods, but it then discusses the previous losses of Marduk, describing them as if Marduk is narrating a fate that will be unchangeable. It then gets to the Elamites and spends most of its time there. Marduk says, I am Marduk, great lord, lord of destinies and decisions am I. Who but me made this journey? I have returned from whence I have gone. It was I who ordered it. I went to the land of Elam that all the gods went. It was I who ordered it. I cut off the offerings to the temples. I caused gods of cattle and grain to go away to heaven. The goddess of fermentation sickened the land. The people's corpses choked the gates. Brother consumed brother. Comrade slew his comrade with a weapon. Free citizens spread out their hands to beg money from the poor. Authority was restricted. Injustice afflicted the land. Rebellious kings diminished the land. Lions cut off travel. Dogs went mad and bit people. As many as they bit did not live but perished. I fulfilled my days. I fulfilled my years. I resolved to return to my city of Babylon and to Ekersagila, my temple. I spoke to all the world. It was I who ordered it. Bring your tribute, ye lands, to Babylon. Note what particular bad things make the list when the god is absent. We see war and famine, which are similar to what pretty much everyone would call a bad time, but interestingly, authority being restricted and free men begging from the poor. The so, so the social order falling apart, you see, was an inherently bad thing for the ancients. Consider that a modern historian might look at a dark period in history and cite the collapse of authority as potentially 
you know, the cause of various bad things. You don't have authority, you get economic breakdowns, you get conflict. But they saw the lack of authority as bad in of itself. Authority and hierarchy were not valued for their positive effects on society, but they were valued for the sake of authority and hierarchy. Though surely they could have also pointed to certain positive results from strong authority, it is worthwhile to remind ourselves from time to time that these people are operating under a very different intellectual and moral framework than we do. Anyway, it says... A king of Babylon will arise. He will renew the marvelous temple, the Ekersagila. And note that Ekersagila is a variant name of Esagila, which is Marduk's main temple in Babylon. You usually hear Esagila. Um, I'm not 100% sure what that cur is in there, but it's, it's all... It's a mess. Cuneiform language is a mess. I'm just going to tell you that. Uh, he will create the plans of heaven and earth in Ekersagila. He will double the height of the temple. He will establish exemptions for my city Babylon. He will lead me in procession to my city Babylon and bring me into eternal Ekersagila. He will restore my processional boat. He will inlay its rudder with precious metal. He will cover its coming with gold leaf. The boatmen who serve it, he will bring aboard. They will be divided to right and left. The king will embark from the dock of Esagila. This is followed by a good bit of ritual instruction for getting everything ready for Marduk's return. And once this is done, it continues saying, The gate of heaven will be open. Ningirsu will prevail. The watercourses will bring fish. Fields and acreage will be full of yield. The winter crop will last until the summer harvest. The summer crop will last until the winter. The harvest of the land will be bountiful. Market prices will be favorable. Wicked deeds will be rectified. Obscurities will be cleared up. Wicked deeds will be brought to light. Clouds will always be visible. Remember, that's a good thing when you're under that hot Mesopotamian sun. Brother will have consideration for brother. Son will revere the father like a god. Mother will cherish daughter. Bride will be married and revere her husband. There will always be consideration among the people. The young man will always bear his burden. The prince will rule all lands. Note again how many of the blessings of the gods are bound up with ideas of order. And then it says, Finally, I and all the gods being reconciled with him, that is Nebuchadnezzar, he will smash Elam, he will smash its cities, he will dismantle its fortresses, he will lift the great king of Dur from his unsuitable position, change his desolation and his bad situation, and take him by the hand, and bring him into Dur and its temple Ekerdimgalkalama forever. That one was a bit long. Now, that taking by the hand is not a romantic gesture. It is a fundamental part of both kingship 
and the Akitu Festival, an offer of Marduk to personally and directly legitimize the kingship of this prophesied king. All of this, though, is partly why most scholars think it was written during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar to exalt him in his moment of triumph. After all, they come in with the assumption that knowing the future through divine means is impossible, so it was either during or after Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And as we move forward, we'll increasingly see that Babylon doesn't actually experience the promised overflowing of blessings. Things stay pretty much how they are until things get worse. In fact, as we'll see next time, some of the most enduring literature from this period is all about dealing with how horrible life can be sometimes. And so this prophecy must have been written in the excitement of Marduk's return with the very real anticipation of a coming golden age, not unlike the Christian millenarian fervor that crops up from time to time in Western history. However, there are also those who look at this and say, for various reasons having to do with language, that it was written much later. Now, this view is used to support the idea that the Marduk supremacy cult arose very late, and this text was just one of many bits of literature trying to make Marduk more ancient and legitimate. The fact that Babylon did not enjoy a blissful utopia following the, the return of Marduk would, by this point, have been far beyond the living memory of the people who had been reading this, and it could easily have been assumed that things were just better back in the old days. We know that they tended to think like this throughout the ancient world, and indeed in the modern world, and by the late period, all the trials of what we now call the Bronze Age Collapse may have faded and been remembered probably as part of just the good old days that people nowadays are too useless to bring back. Anyway, we have time for one more reading, and this one is absolutely, definitely from the late period. While the text is interesting all by itself, it's probably written in around the same general time frame as the Jewish period of Babylonian exile, famously the time that much of the Old Testament was brought together in a unified form, or as unified as it ever got, and some of these lines echo much older Mesopotamian traditions. While I could, while some I could probably claim come from the book of Psalms, and I could probably trick a number of you if I fix these little pagan references, uh, just because that's how similar some of the writing is. Anyway, this one is known as the Seed of Nebuchadnezzar, and it goes like this. Praise is for him whose might is over the universe for eternity, whose anger is grievous, but whose relenting is sweet, glorious to praise. In his power are abandonment and repopulation. He reveals to future peoples how to watch for his sign. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who sets in order all cult centers, who maintains regular offerings. Marduk exalted his wisdom, magnified his power, made him foremost. Marduk made great his might. He exalted his great destiny. Scion of royalty, 
remote in time, seed that has been watched for since before the deluge, descendant of Enmaduranki, king of Sippar, who instituted the sacred diviner's bowl, who held the cedar, and who took his place before Shamash and Adad, the divine judges. Now, here is an important point. Was Nebuchadnezzar actually the descendant of the great king Enmaduranki, who lived before the great flood? The answer is, of course not. Even if Enmaduranki was a real king way back in the pre-literate past, there's no way a lineal connection could be established between the two. What this is, is a way of saying that after hundreds of years of foreign rule, there was finally a native ruling in Babylon, and that he's the one specifically selected by Marduk. Of course, it is possible that being a descendant of Enmaduranki is meant more as a metaphorical thing, with Enmaduranki being the one who brought rulership and priesthood authority down from the heavens, and Nebuchadnezzar is thus the inheritor of the general concept of divine right of kings. Either way, it's an important and interesting key to how Nebuchadnezzar was remembered by later generations. It continues... Foremost son of Ninurtanadin Shumi, just king, faithful shepherd who defended and upheld this land, superb offspring of Adad and Gula, the great gods of Nippurian descent and lineage eternal, foremost attendant of Shuziana, twin sister of Anshar, summoned forth by An and Dagan, chosen by the steadfast hearts of the great gods, am I. Yeah, we cover his actual father and obfuscate the rest of his lineage, which has led some to think that Ninurtanadin Shumi was not actually part of the Isan dynasty. And note also that earlier we had Nebuchadnezzar as being from Babylon, and his family is apparently from Nippur, which is, of course, where the ancient um, home of the greatest temples and gods was. Um, and so, was there some reason why the full lineage would need to be politely ignored? Uh, we're not sure, but that's not the point here. The point is that just like Gilgamesh, Nebuchadnezzar is at least partly divine. So partly divine, in fact, that the writer can't even settle on which god he's descended from exactly. Exactly. Uh, interesting also to see so many gods cited here, even though we're clearly looking at a Marduk supremacist work. And sometimes you'll see the cult of Marduk mentioned as a type of henotheism, or sort of an early approach to monotheism. But texts like this make it clear that Marduk may have been top god, but always in a strictly polytheistic context. Anyway, we continue. It came to pass that in the reign of a previous king, the signs changed. Good vanished, and evil was prevailing. The Lord became angry and waxed furious. He commanded that the gods of the land forsake it, its people went out of their minds. They were incited to falsehood. The guardian of well-being became furious and went up to heaven. The protective genus of justice stood aside. 
the guardian of living creatures, overthrew the people, and they all became as if they had no god. Malignant demons filled the land. Remorseless plague penetrated the cult centers. The land was diminished, its council changed. The vile Elamite, who did not hold precious the gods, whose battle was swift, whose onslaught was quick to come, laid waste the habitations, ravaged the gods, turned the sanctuaries into ruins. Now, we've seen all this sort of thing already, but it's good to see it repeated because it isn't just in these Marduk poems today that we've seen these tropes. These same sort of things, with a few small details changed, have shown up in many of our looks at ancient literature and myth whenever the gods are absent. Why did the signs change? It's never mentioned, or if it is mentioned, it's not in our sources, and it would have been passed on through secret traditions, which makes it sound really exciting, but really, we know that they kept some things not written down, passed orally from teacher to student over time, or if they were written down, they were kept in secret tablets, and it's a job security thing. Uh, you, you can't let just anybody know. I mean, literacy is already very tightly controlled, but you can't let just anybody know all of your secrets that wouldn't make you look as good it isn't that said it isn't clear all the time whether the scribes are covering up the bad things that may have caused the ill fortune or maybe they just don't consider it knowable uh what caused all these things you know the gods do what the gods do and sometimes you know and sometimes you don't know Either perspective would have interesting implications, but I don't think we can confidently say one way or the other. It continues, Marduk, king of the gods, who ordains the destinies of the lands, observed all. When the Lord is angry, the Igigi gods in heaven cannot bear his fury. His frightfulness is terrifying. No man can withstand his glowering. The hardest ground sustained not his tread. Oceans trembled at his rage. No rocky crag withstood his footstep. The gods of the universe knelt before him. All existence is entrusted to his power. When he grew angry, who could appease him? Now this part you could say is the most... Old Testament part of the work, but note also that there are key differences. Marduk, when angry, can not be appeased, a radically different perspective from the idea of pleading for mercy and offering redemptive sacrifices in the Old Testament. Just interesting to note, I think. We get a gap in the text at this point, and when it returns, there seems to have been some really poetic stuff about how terrible things are when the god is absent. But soon Marduk's servant, probably Nebuchadnezzar, though it may mean all faithful worshippers, will have relief. What was inside the city... Outside the city, in the steppe, in the open country, Marduk filled with deathly stillness and turned into a desert. 
the servant who revered him, who was assiduous in prayer, obedient and constantly awaiting his revelation, ceased not from praying until Marduk would fulfill his heart's desire. The servant says, Until I behold his lofty figure, dejection of heart will never depart from my person, even for a day, nor can I have a full term of sleep in night's sweet lap. On account of my most distressing lamentations, my ardent prayers, my entreaties, and the prostration that I performed in lamentation before him daily, his profound heart took pity, and he relented to the holy city. He made his decision and set forth from the evils of Elam. He took the road of jubilation, the path of gladness, and his way to Babylon that signified his hearing and acceptance of my prayers. The people of the land looked upon his lofty, suitable, notable form as they acclaimed his brilliance, all of them paying heed to him. The Lord entered and took up his comfortable abode. The gate of radiance, his lordly cella, beamed for joy. The heavens bore him their abundance, earth its yield, sea its catch, and mountains their tribute, their gifts beyond compare, or that tongue could even tell. Their massive tribute to the Lord of lords. Many sleep, sheep were slaughtered, prime bulls were provided in abundance, food offerings were magnificent, incense was heaped up. And there was much rejoicing until the end of the texts. These sort of texts were all written to celebrate Nebuchadnezzar, often for political reasons, since by the time we get to the Neo-Babylonian Empire, there really hasn't been that many indigenous kings that you could really celebrate in quite a long time. And these later kings are often digging pretty deep into antiquity to help justify their preeminence in the world. But for most listeners, the main point was not a subtle one. Things are good when Marduk is happy. Things are bad when he is not happy. The details of Marduk being happy or otherwise would have been explicated through the process of divination and oral tradition and the general cultural milieu of the time, but that's the overall sense of things. Now, we've been focused pretty heavily on Nebuchadnezzar's recovery of Marduk, and for sure this is what later generations were focused on as well. But if we look at the Marduk prophecy and history, this is the third major time that Marduk has been lost and recovered. But it is this event that Babylonians would come to focus on. We can't say for certain why that is. The record is terribly sparse, but one thing that likely contributed is that the later bit of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, and possibly the decades after, saw a brief but significant flourishing of literature and art. Now, this flourishing may have been the thing that caused later generations to remember the Marduk event. Or it may have been coincidental, but we can hardly pass by this era without pausing to consider it. And so next week, our focus will be on this cultural flowering. 
we're going to read perhaps the most famous item of Babylonian wisdom literature, often compared quite directly to the Book of Job, called the Babylonian Theodicy, which was probably composed and written either during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar or one of his immediate successors. So join us next time as we look at a man who's having a really hard time and in the process is echoing the same problem of evil questions that have so fascinated Mesopotamian literature for centuries already. Thank you for listening.